Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Taffy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Taffy. And I know I'm excited every time, but I'm extra, extra excited today because I get to interview fellow podcaster, Molly Woodstock. Molly Woodstock is a journalist, audio producer, and inclusivity educator. They're queer and trans and biracial and other things that I'm sure we'll talk about. Molly frequently leads diversity and equity workshops with an emphasis on transgender topics, and they've been featured as a gender educator in the New York Times, NPR, Washington Post, uh, San Francisco's Chronicle, and other publications. Molly produces and hosts an award-winning weekly podcast called Gender Reveal. I am super excited for you all to find out about Gender Reveal if you don't know about it. And if you know about it, you get to listen to Molly. So win-win. Molly is also a 2019 Third Coast Rockdale Radio resident and a 2019 Third Coast feature speaker. Molly has previously worked as an health editor, a vegan food writer, and the editor of the Portland Visitor Guide. They've written over 500 articles for various publications and edited hundreds of of other articles. Their bylines include such outlets as the Washington Post, Beach, and Portland Monthly. Molly holds a BFA in documentary film production from Chapman University. And also, they feel obligated to tell you that they're a Sagittarius Sun and the Leo Rising. I'm sure we'll get to talk about that, too. (laughs) And they live in Portland, Oregon with a kitten named Rhubarb. I'm like Pisces with Cancer Rising. Ooh, so many right? different. <laughs> I know. I'm with the Leo Moon. I mean, it's it's kind of a mess, really, in, the, in my chart. So much water. Oh, man. <laughs> well, welcome, Molly. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on kind of gender stories. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. So just in case, I think it's probably unlikely, but just in case people don't know about your amazing podcast, Gender Reveal, would you like to share with the the Gender Stories listeners kind of what Gender Reveal is about and what motivated you to start it? Yeah. So the story I tell about starting Gender Reveal is that I went to a podcast conference in 2017 because I was working on a different podcast at the time. And the podcast conference was billed as a conference for women and non-binary people. Uh, And then I got there and it was like clearly just for cis women. Uh, And there was like no other trans people there that I could find. And there were also actually very few queer people there. And so the topics that I'm most interested in, which are like queer topics and trans topics and the way that that intersects with race and class and ability and size and all sorts of stuff like that, there was no space to talk about those things at the conference uh, other than with like five other queer people. And so because I was at a podcasting conference, I started thinking about what would it look like to make a podcast where I got to have like the really high level gender conversations uh, that I was having with my own community, but in a platform that allowed other people who aren't usually exposed to those conversations to have access to that. 
And that looks like two different things. One of them is trans people or people who may realize that they're trans after listening to the podcast who don't have access to those communities in real life and who can use the podcast and the community around the podcast to like learn more about themselves and find community. And then also it looks like cisgender people who don't have exposure to these spaces because obviously trans people don't love talking about gender with cis people all the time because it's really exhausting. Um, It gives them an opportunity to learn from trans people without asking for like really personal draining labor because like I don't want to have conversations with every single cis person about what gender is for 61 hours or however much podcast I've made but um like they are welcome to listen to the podcast I think that's wonderful and I love all of the different voices that you center because you tend to center cutie BIPOC Mm -hmm. voices and and I would like you to share with the listeners kind of why that choice which I mean makes sense to me but just to to be really clear to the listeners why you're making that choice which I think it's a wonderful choice but yeah thank you yeah so I'm very deliberate about the fact that the majority of our guests are Black, Indigenous, and or people of color. And we have at least one like Two-Spirit or Two-Spirit adjacent guest on each season. And the reasons that I do that is mostly because queer and trans spaces that I'm a part of get very, very white very, very quickly. I live in Portland, Oregon, which is 76% white. And then just online as well, I just see a lot of whiteness. And in the media representation of non-binary people, I see a lot of whiteness. Uh, And I just think it's really, really important to celebrate folks who are trans or non-binary who aren't white. One, just because like they deserve representation and they're underrepresented right now. Uh, But also because cultures that aren't white of various kinds often have a much richer and deeper history of trans and non-binary identities or what we would now call trans and non-binary identities that go back, you know, centuries and millennia. Whereas like European folks are coming to trans and non-binary identities a lot more recently. And so I really like to look at what gender looks like for people of different experiences and what, if we could decrease, decolonize our concepts of gender, uh, what that would look like for different people and what would it look like for them to return to the gender concepts like of their ancestors. Mm. I love that. That That's one of the things that um, I'm finding more and more that I cannot talk about gender without talking about the ongoing Sela Colonial mm-hmm. Project and how the two are completely just interwoven, right? The rigid gender binary and the ongoing Sela Colonial Project and like white supremacy all seem to go hand in hand mm-hmm. um, with one another. And yes, and I I love that on gender reveal. I think you explored that from a lot of different facets and of course, lots of different aspects of gender too, but that's one of the ways in which you engage with it. Um, kind of doing gender reveal, what are the things that have surprised you the most um, kind of doing this podcast, either in terms of people you've interviewed or kind of interfacing with your listeners? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that this shouldn't have been surprising to me, but I live in Portland, Oregon, and it is so trans here. There's just a really strong trans culture and a really strong queer culture. And when I'm out in the world, I see trans people around me all the time. And that's really normal to me. And so something that really became obvious when I started making the podcast is that there's a lot of people 
who don't have any trans community in real life. Like even in Portland, I'm meeting people in Portland who are like, I just came out as trans or I'm not out as trans yet. Please help me find community because I don't know any other trans people. Uh, But also obviously outside of Portland, all across the world, there are people who are reaching out and saying like, this is a really vital lifeline for me because I don't get to see trans people in real life or I only know like one or two other trans people in real life. And this is giving me a tool to feel validated in my gender because I'm not seeing in real life other people who look like me or who experience gender the way that I do. Uh, So that's been really huge and really powerful. And one thing that's really helped with that as well is that I had so many different folks reaching out to me, trying to like be my friend because I was the trans person that they knew, right? So they would reach out online and be like, oh, you're trans and I'm trans. Let's be good friends. And I was like, I love you. And also like, I don't have time for like the three friends that I have, you know? And so um, I was like, okay, I can't be like every listener's best friend, unfortunately, because of time and space. But what I can do is like create a really robust community for everyone to meet each other and support each other. And so I created a Slack, which is uh, at bit.ly slash gender Slack two, the number two. And uh, it's just a community where like hundreds of people who listen to gender reveal, uh, or who somehow <laughs> found out about the Slack, uh, come and create community for each other. And it's all over the world. And it's people who are out people who aren't out people who are in the midst of coming out people who just realized they were trans yesterday from listening to the podcast people who have been out for like a decade. And it's or more Uh, And it's a really, really beautiful community, but it really does highlight how many different places in their journey everyone is. Mm. And, and I love what you said about kind of, you know, people do one community and you created that community, but just because you're doing gender reveal, you can't be everybody's friend, right? And um, (laughs) just very real Um, as a fellow, I mean, I'm an introvert. So I was like, I already have trouble seeing the like five people that I see (laughs) on a regular basis. (laughs) And uh, recently, Mac John Burka wrote this blog post about kind of treating writers or other people kind of consensually or, um, and I'm curious about, and I've also had interactions like, because, you know, there's a book out there and people really relate to it or might even have figured out more about your gender because of it. Kind of how do you find this experience of people feeling like they know you because they listen to the podcast, but they don't know you at the same time, if that makes yeah. sense. What's that like yeah. for you? Yeah, parasocial relationships are really interesting to me. And it's something that I think about a lot. And I I come at it from both sides because like there are people who listen to the podcast who know a lot about me and I don't know them. But then also when I interview people for the show, I'm researching them Mm. for days and then they don't know me outside of the podcast necessarily. Some of them do listen to the podcast, but a lot of them don't. Uh, So yeah, that's something that I think about a lot and I'm really careful about in my life. And one of the ways that I had approached it intentionally was not revealing a lot about my personal life on the podcast. And sometimes I would talk to the guests a lot about things that were going on with me, and then I would cut it out of the show. And then sometimes I would allude to the fact that I had cut a bunch of stuff out of the show. And people were like, leave it in, leave it in. (laughs) Or like, even my guests, like I would say, like, I'm going to cut this out. But and they were like, don't cut this out. It's really important. And it was just me trying to protect myself uh, as like a public figure in the world. Uh, but recently I have experimented a little bit more with putting more of myself out there. Uh, most recently or most notably, I missed an 
week. I missed a week last month where I tried to put a podcast out and I didn't get it done. And what I did instead was record like 15 minutes of talking about my personal life and all the reasons that I couldn't get the podcast out. And like, they all were connected to gender in some way, or I wouldn't have done it. But that was huge and really, really vulnerable for me. And it got a really, really big response, like a really positive response. And I felt really supported and I felt really felt really cared for. And when I am running late on the show or not giving it as much time as I want to, people really show up and say, hey, Molly, take care of yourself. <laughs> hey, Molly, sleep mm-hmm. sometimes. Hey, Molly, eat sometimes. Hey, Molly, rest sometimes. Uh, we'll be here and we're not going anywhere if you're late on something or you don't get everything done that you want to. Uh, And so really, in a lot of ways, the people who listen to the show and feel like they know me uh, show up for me in these really real ways, even if I don't know them, because they're like, here's five, they'll send me like, they're like, here's $8, go buy a cup of coffee. (laughs) I'll be like, oh, okay, can I donate that to my show? And they're like, no, you cannot donate it to the show. You have to go get yourself a snack. And I'm like, ah. (laughs) So that's been really incredible, actually. I know, like taking care of ourselves. What's that, right? And I'm, you know, and I say that with some shame, given that I'm a therapist. I'm like, I'm always working on self care, and then I'm like, I'm doing great. And my family, my household, just looks at me and goes, "No, that's like not self care. That's just really basic survival." I'm like, I'm working so hard on this. What are you talking about? And yeah, God. Say like every time I have five minutes instead of like reading a book or taking a nap, I just start a new project. So like Monday was Indigenous Peoples Day in the United States, and mm-hmm. uh, I just made a really innocuous Twitter Twitter post about maybe it wasn't that innocuous. It was innocuous for me, an extreme fire sign uh, about Indigenous Peoples Day, and it got too popular and I started getting so many incredibly racist comments which I normally don't get like I normally have a really good experience on Twitter and so I was like okay I'm gonna raise money for queer and trans indigenous people and I want to raise at least five dollars for every racist comment and I ended up raising oh what are we at now like twelve hundred dollars just from donations on Twitter and I was going to donate it to an organization, but I really believe in like direct giving. So I was like, okay, what I'm actually going to do is ask queer and trans indig- and two spirit indigenous people to share their uh, PayPal and cash app with me. And I sent out a thousand dollars, five or $10 at a time. And that's all I did for two days. And it's like, it's not like I didn't have other things to do. <laughs> it's just that I stopped everything I was doing for two days to raise $1,200 and then handed out $5 at a time. Uh, because that's the kind of person that I am. So I need to calm down is what I'm saying. <laughs> but, you know, I want, but that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, actually, because, and I think it does come from having marginalized identities or certain experiences in the world that one of the things I see you do is continuously putting back in the community, right? Uh, whether it's the grant program that Gender Reveal does or what I saw you do on Twitter um, around what was happening with Indigenous Peoples Days. And, and, and that's the thing, right? When we become too popular, then there is this enforced vulnerability where people who really want to attack trans and non-binary folks can come at us, right? Which is not awesome. Um, but I wonder how much of that wanting to continuously kind of give back to community comes from your own kind of identity and experiences. Yeah, totally. 
Uh, yeah, I think it's this weird internalized, well, weird but incredibly common, uh, internalized shame around all of the passing privileges that I have and all of the just privileges, privileges that I have. Like, so for example, like I'm queer and I'm trans and both my moms are Mexican, uh, but I get read in the world whether I want to or not as like a cis white lady. And also I have a lot of economic privilege that is rooted in weird traumatic events happening to my family. But like, regardless, like I have a lot of economic privilege. And so I am a trans person who is more safe in the world than a lot of other trans people. I live in a state that has strong trans rights and trans protections legally. And I also have like a huge safety net at this point in my life. And I see people all around me, both like literally in my own home and outside of that in the world who are really struggling to just meet the bare necessities, right? Because so many trans people live in poverty, especially trans people of color, but really all trans people. And, um, you know, when I was sending out money to those queer and trans indigenous folks, I didn't make them tell me anything about their lives. They just sent me their handle and I would send them five or $10. And people wrote back and were like, thank you. This is going to help me eat today. And I was just like, oh no, (laughs) like you need more than five or $10. Uh, and when I do the grants, you know, I, last time we read 80 applications and like all 80 of those people like deserved way more money than we could even give. And so I just think that as long as I have shelter and food and, you know, my basic needs met and like enough to like have a good time with my friends on the side, I don't need more money than that. And there's so many people who don't even have their basic needs met. And it's really, really hard to not want to give all of the time. And then, uh, just to be like, I'm really committed to being really open about money. So like, just in the the interest of transparency, like someone reached out the other day and said they wanted to donate $2,000 to gender reveal, which is wild because the most we've ever received is like mm, 50, you know? (laughs) So, and so I was just like, wow, that's like a really, really huge amount of money. And she was just like, oh, well, like I'm like a senior, a senior engineer at this really fancy global company that I won't name. And I make like $150,000 a year. And like my coworkers make like $200,000 a year or $300,000 a year. And like, you know, you should be going after that. And that's the part where I get really frustrated because I am making, you know, I'm about to take a huge pay cut and I'm going to be making like $20,000 a year, (laughs) you know? So like the difference between 20,000 and 200,000, it's literally 10 X. And like the amount that I am dedicated to giving, uh, is not going to change, but it would be really, really nice to see people who have a lot more privilege than even I do to like also be that committed to giving. (laughs) Absolutely. That's a conversation I have with like actually other folks in community all the time that it's often the folks who don't have as much as other folks who are the ones who are giving the most. Right. And I think somewhere there's even like research about this, that, um, that, and I wonder how much of that is kind of knowing, like being in community with other folks and other knowing from personal experiences, if one is brought up in poverty or from other people's experiences around us in community, the people are truly struggling to do things like pay their rent and keep a roof over their head if they even have one or like eating, you know, or being able to get to a doctor's appointment because they don't have bus money, you know, and, and I find that in community too, that I've had, um, you know, maybe like 
cis white gay men who are also part of my community ask things like, wow, why do you do all those things? Or why do you show up? And and I kind of want to say like, why don't you show up in the same way? You know, it's like, what is it that about your experience that is not getting through that you cannot see what's actually going on in our broader co- trans and queer community? Um, and, and kind of almost that wall of privilege i don't know i don't know if i have a better word for it but there's like this insulating that happens in trans and queer communities where some folks somehow don't seem to be exposed to just how deep kind of the systemic oppression goes for some other folks i don't yeah, know totally. making sense? and i think you know that's really really true is that we compare ourselves to the people we're in community with so i'm comparing myself to people who mm-hmm. are like have $15 in their bank account, right? And I'm just like, okay, well, I have a ton of privilege compared to these people. Or like, mm, so like even not just in financial terms, but like my partner is also queer and trans and half Mexican, but they re- are read societally as like a queer and trans person of color. And I'm read societally as like a white lady. And so like compared to them, I have a ton of privilege. But before that, I dated a cis white straight guy. <laughs> and compared to him, I had no privilege and no one gave a shit about me. Sorry, uh, but no one cared about me. And so okay, great. No one, we can uh, swear. No one gave a shit about me. <laughs> and so it's this really like dynamic thing of like, when I was with him, I was constantly aware of how marginalized I was. And when I'm with my partner now, I'm constantly aware of how privileged I am. And that it's I'm the same person. <laughs> you know, so I think there's a lot of people who just like, they have so many privileges, but instead of comparing themselves to like people in our community or in mine, they're comparing themselves to like mm-hmm. Elon Musk, right? And they're just like, well, <laughs> yeah. I'm not rich. I don't have privilege. So. Absolutely. And it, it's, it is so relational, right? Which unsurprisingly, which kind of gender is as well. You know, I'm thinking about my own identity, you know, being read in a certain way. Um, when I was presenting more femme and, you know, partnered maybe with other femme presenting people and then being totally erased when I was presenting with femme and maybe dating kind of more masculine people and then kind of then looking more gay once I started presenting more masculine because of my partnerships, right? And how relational it is and fluid and, and how much, depending on who I'm with, my gender gets read in different ways, which is always kind of a very fascinating to me um like what are you reading in this situation right now what sense are you trying to make of it and um and I love what you described that is so dynamic right and I think that's something that's hard for some people to get their head around that it's not like gender is this fixed thing that once you have it once and for all you know what's your identity but you're also navigating a world where people are always gendering and racializing and making assumptions about our bodies in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've, I wonder how that plays out for you as a journalist as well. Cause often on Twitter, you talk also about kind of being an out trans journalist and, and how that works for you as a journalist and also as a speaker more generally, just out in the world doing this work of educating people on this topic. Uh, yes. Let me think of how this plays out. Um, no, sorry. I just no, thrown no, like 500 no. things. Like uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like right now, the way my experience has been recently as a journalist is really siloed. Like I've been doing a lot of like quiet editing and I haven't been doing a lot of interacting as a journalist, but I have been doing a lot of interaction as like an expert source for other journalists, if that makes sense. Like when you were introducing me, it was like, I have bylines mm-hmm. in the Washington Post, but I have, you know, quotes and interviews in 
the New York Times, NPR, Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, like all this stuff. And so I've been interacting with media a lot more lately from the consultant side and the workshop leader side and the expert source side than I have actually like as a journalist, uh, which is honestly frustrating to me because a lot of the times the people that I'm consulting or giving workshops to or giving quotes to not always, like sometimes they're also non-binary, but a lot of times there are cis people who don't know how to interact with trans people respectively. And there's been multiple times where I've been interviewed for really, really major national outlets and then spent a lot of time crying and a lot of time shaking and multiple days pulling my like hidden contacts in. Like I have like contacts at NPR and I have contacts at the New York Times and like activating them and being like, please make sure I don't get misgendered. (laughs) And like, it shouldn't be Mm -hmm. the case that anytime I, like obviously it's a huge privilege for me to be able to go on national media and like, I don't take that for granted, but like it shouldn't be the case that anytime I do that, I'm putting myself at risk and I have to spend several days using my like handy insider sources to like sneak in and make sure that they fix my pronouns. Right. Like that shouldn't, because they're, because I'm being interviewed about non-binary gender (laughs) all the time. And it's just so wild how many times I'm being interviewed by non-binary gender and then being misgendered in the piece. Absolutely. And I, I think it was you who tweeted something about, you know, like cis journalists talking about, you know, non-binary folks kind of (laughs) This person who identifies, you know, that's like 500 yeah. sentences and, that, and yeah, that tweet is that. the most <laughs> tweet we've ever had. It has like 58,000 likes right now and I have it open. So it says trans reporter writing about a non-binary person. They drink coffee. Cis reporter writing about that person. The person who prefers to identify as gender non-binary despite being assigned female at birth and who prefers the gender neutral pronouns they and them drink coffee. <laughs> Right. And and that's not it's even not. the worst thing that can happen when you're a trans or non-binary and you get interviewed by no, national because, media, like, people, honestly. So many people have responded to it with like the same two comments, which are like, and then the next line would be, she drank coffee. <laughs> and then the other right? thing are like, and they would work in a dead name in there somewhere. Um, and both those things are true, but I was mm-hmm. confined by the limits of the, you know, tweet length. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's true. It's like, how many times am I going to do interviews about literally about respecting non-binary people? And then they'll be like, Miss Woodstock, she prefers the pronouns they them. And I'll be like, I'm going to die. (laughs) And you're like, something went very wrong there. Well, and even when a journalist gets it completely right, I don't know about your experience, but in my limited experience, then there's also all of the public comments that can happen. You know, so all of the, the, Often we can ignore them, but sometimes if we make the mistake of going to look at them or somebody goes, oh, look, you've been interviewed for this piece and there are all these hateful comments, right? It kind of exposes you to um, just just a level of vulnerability publicly that can be really scary as a trans person. And I don't know if you've experienced, I mean, you've experienced obviously some of that just last Monday, mm-hmm. but Indigenous People Day in terms of one aspect of your identity. But um, yes, I don't know if, and I think that, makes people hesitant to be more open sometimes about who they are. Um, And I just wonder if you have anything to share with maybe trans folks who are more reluctant to be public because they fear uh, what might come at them if they're more public about who they are. Yeah, that makes total sense. I am really lucky in that I don't receive typically a lot of negative comments at least not that are visible to me and when I do see them they're pretty generic like no one's 
so far, no one's like trying to dox me specifically or trying to like harass me tar- in a targeted way. They're just sort of throwing all of their bigoted ideas about my identities in my general direction, but not really to me, which is honestly incredibly lucky. Um, I think that if trans people have the opportunity to be in the media, I wouldn't recommend it unless it's a trans journalist. The reason that I navigate it is one, because that's like what I'm committed to doing in life, but also I'm incredibly media trained from being a journalist. So I know how to navigate these things in a like really expert way. And even then sometimes it's really hard. So I honestly wouldn't recommend that trans people necessarily risk that if they're working with like a cisgender journalist, but just Mm -hmm. in life in like public space. Yeah. You have to be really ready for a lot of negative comments to potentially come your way. But I will say that the more public you are, the more community you get and where the support you get also, because people don't know to support you unless you're out there. And something that I hear on the gender reveal Slack and generally in the gender reveal comments all the time are people saying, hey, I'm not out at work. How can I get people to stop misgendering me without coming out? I'm like, what? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, so I'm um, I'm not a woman, but I'm assigned female at birth. And so how do I get people to stop calling me a woman without telling them I'm trans? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> you know, it's, but it's hard. Like, I understand that impulse, but like, you can't have it both ways. Unfortunately, I wish that you could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like, part of coming out is really scary. But I think that generally, like, the more space you take up, you're still going to get, or at least I hope that you're still going to get like 80 to 90% positive comments that you weren't going to get if you didn't put yourself forward. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's just whether you're like willing to risk it for the 10% of comments that might suck. Absolutely. And I think sometimes, uh, at least in my experience, and I could be wrong, but it's the folks who tend to have more societal privilege where it might be scarier to lose mm-hmm. some some of that societal privilege and to kind of be be attacked. But and I, I really love what you said that there needs to be a certain level of media savvy. And in my limited interactions with the media as a, a ex academic and independent scholar, that is so true. So if there are trans folks who are inter, interfacing with the media for other reasons, maybe because of their expertise or their job, kind of what tips would you give them as a trans journalist when they're inter interfacing with like other kind of journalists and or media folks Hmm. yeah I don't it's really hard because I've been so clear and still been misgendered or still been treated poorly like at some point like you just have to release control to that other person but I would say just do everything you can to make sure that you're going to be at least gendered correctly and like named correctly. And uh, yeah, don't be afraid to like be really insistent on it. So like when I was on national public radio a few weeks ago uh, and I was misgendered a bazillion times when we were recording, I asked the host like, Hey, can you make sure that I don't get misgendered in the final version? And she was like, no, I think we got it. And I was like, Hmm. So then I went to the producer and was like, Hey, can you make sure I'm not misgendered in the final version? And she's like, no, I think we got it. And I was like, hey, you didn't get it. Can you promise me? I don't know if this is your job, but like, can you promise me that whoever is in charge of making this show will make sure that I don't get misgendered in the final edit? And she was just like, okay, I'm here. My editor's here and we promise you. And I was like, okay. And then I followed up on email and she was like, yep. Or like, you know, in print, like, I promise I will make sure that whatever happens, you won't get misgendered. And then it, 
it worked. But like, I had to ask like six different times. And I had to show up for myself when I was like, having a really terrible experience, you know. And so uh, like, you can't, you can't guarantee and even when I was, you know, ultimately gendered correctly, the way that I was introduced was uh, really what inspired that tweet because I was introduced as Molly identifies as non-binary and uses the pronoun they and theirs. And like what I would like to be introduced as Molly is a journalist, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, or like they're a journalist, or yeah. they're a non-binary journalist. And so like, I still felt like an alien from outer space. And like the producer reached out to me later and was like, how was it? And I was like, well, thanks for not misgendering me. I felt like an alien from outer space and here's why. And she was like, oh yeah, there was like a big argument in the studio about how to handle that. And I guess we should have just asked you, but we were embarrassed to admit that we didn't know what to do. And like, that comes back to like, why I'm so frustrated as a trans journalist and like why I'm so frustrated that I haven't been doing journalism lately is that people, cis people keep putting out terrible, 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 terrible content about trans people. And like, I know so many trans journalists, I know hundreds of them, and I'm one of them, and we're not getting hired, right? And so like, why aren't we getting hired to make the content about trans journalists? Why are you hiring people that literally don't know any trans people to do this? It makes no sense. And your stories are suffering because you are assigning people who don't know what they're talking about. And like, we're here, ready for you to hire us. Right. And people don't even think about it half the time. And that was actually going to be my follow-up question, which was, you know, is there a place also for people to push back and go, hey, you're interviewing me about this story and it's about trans and minority issues. And uh, I would like to respectfully ask you about your identity and why is a trans and or non-binary journalist not covering this if you're a cis person, right? And, and I think we need to start doing that more and more because there's always this assumption that there isn't somebody qualified in our community. And that's just a lie, right? Absolutely. It's it's like we are everywhere and we have so much expertise in so many different fields. And and I've had really bizarre things happening, like somebody organizing a conference and asking me about inviting the cis white men to talk about gender because they wanted somebody (laughs) with a book about gender. and, And I was like, so literally you're asking me because I'm trans, but I also have a book about gender right. and I'm a therapist <laughs> and I'm like a trauma, like I fit all these things that you're asking for, but you are just assuming because I'm trans, I don't even exist, even though we're having this conversation. Right. It's bizarre, just bizarre, right? Yeah, and it's super wild. I So I, uh, speaking of like pushing back on that, when I, I was being interviewed a different time for NPR and uh, the person who was interviewing me was like, oh, I'm not excited for the comments on this one, <laughs> like the internet comments. And I was like, oh, wow. are you trans? And I was like, oh, are you trans? And he was just like, oh, no, but I'm an ally. And I just laughed out loud and said, you don't get to decide that. <laughs> and he got so yes, flustered and so freaked out. And I was just like, yeah, uh, we get to decide whether you're being an ally or not. You don't get to just tell me you're an ally. <laughs> Exactly. And so basically, yeah, exactly. (laughs) The real question is, why is NPR not hiring you to cover those stories? (laughs) Great question. It's because I have political opinions. I talked about that a lot on the episode I just put out of Gender Reveal with Lewis Raven Wallace, who just Mm -hmm. put out a podcast series in the book, because Lewis, for your listeners, Lewis worked at NPR and was the only openly trans person at NPR and then was fired for having political opinions and for saying that objectivity as we think of it is fake. And so yeah, that's the same problem as me, right? Is like, I actually have opinions and I don't hide them. And so I'll never be able to work at national public radio because I will not ever play the game where I pretend that I don't have opinions. <laughs> exactly. 
Which is a weird, bizarre game, too, because people have opinions all the time. It's just somehow when those opinions intersect with our identity or our right to just exist without being questioned every five minutes, then it becomes a hot political topic. I'm, I'm not sure why. Well, I know why, but there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's really obvious, but really interesting, like what, what's politicized, right? Because like, I have a shirt that says, uh, every billionaire is bad. And my partner was like, oh, uh, I can't wear like political shirts to, work and I was like oh but this shirt isn't political it just says every billionaire is bad and they're like that's political to the people that I work with and I was like oh (laughs) so like it just like depends or like you know even like uh trans people existing is political to some people right so like how can I ever get away from politics when I'm trans or how can I ever get away from politics when I'm queer so I just refuse to play that game and like swallow those parts of me just for the sake of like getting a job working for people who don't think that I should exist. Exactly. And and I think that's true for folks with all sorts of marginalized identities, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a, a mentor once kind of made the comment that I should get kind of more uh, diction lessons because I have an accent, <gasps> right? And I'm operating oh in an English context, right? And she was having such a hard time understanding why that statement was like really xenophobic and really problematic, you know? And I'm like, yeah, it's actually like... Yes, it's problematic. And this is why. Let me break it down to you. And and I think people don't even realize that their lives and their comments are also political. But somehow when we exist in this space <laughs> where people don't expect us to exist, and especially with the certain level of expertise and so on, it, it becomes such an issue, right? And it's, yeah, fascinating. So I, I, I'm curious about how much do you think podcasts give the opportunity for voices like yours and like mine and a lot of other guests that we have on the show to kind of talk about things that maybe are not so palatable. I was trying to look for a word and I, and I remember my my friend Jay Shree talks about being palatable minorities. Um, mm. So, you know, maybe we're not being palatable minorities. So do podcasts give an opportunity for people to be less palatable minorities? <laughs> <laughs> I think they do but I think that the podcasts that are more palatable are always the ones that are going to be given the resources and the awards and the opportunities right Mm -hmm. because they're more palatable to a wider audience like I will openly tell cis people who are arguing with me like they'll be like I'm a cis ally so you can't critique me and I'll be like I actually don't care about maintaining you as an ally like Mm -hmm. my job is to like look out for trans people and make things that support trans people and if that alienates you like I don't care um and like you know so like I could alienate a ton of cis people that way who might otherwise like donate to the show or I could alienate uh networks who might otherwise be interested because like our takes are too spicy or whatever um and so yeah I think that it creates a platform but I still think that you know I'm entirely as you are as well I'm sure I'm entirely independently funded like 100% of our money comes through Patreon and PayPal Um, I don't sell ads because I tried for a minute and I was like oh this doesn't work because the 
reading, it wasn't just like, you have to read the ads. It was like, you have to read the ads in a way that people buy our products. And I was like, my listeners are trans. They don't have money for $45 underwear. Like (laughs) no one has that money. And so I was like, okay, like no more ads because it requires trans people to spend money. They don't have on products that cost too much. And instead, if you have $1 to send to the show every month, that's great. And if not, no worries. Uh, yeah. So I think just as someone who's like really involved in the radio world, I see so much of the politics that go along in that and like the respectability politics that go along in that. And I have really, really strong trans community in radio who I feel very lucky to be a part of because we're all sort of pushing back against that in different ways, but it's a hugely uphill battle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I love what you said that, yes, you know, podcasts might still give you a platform and yeah. And my, my podcast is also hundred percent self-funded. And then people are like, please at least do a Patreon so we can like, pay what you're putting out to make the, mm-hmm. the podcast because we you know it's again it's like what comes in goes out and as long as I have enough that that's good and um but even if there is a platform it's not necessarily the same platform that people are gonna listen to right, right. people are gonna always gonna be much more likely to listen to people who don't make them uncomfortable right and, mm-hmm. yeah and people who they have more in common with like I just worry that I mean like I don't I don't make the show for cis people, but I do want cis people to listen to it so that they learn something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's so easy as a cis person to be like, well, this isn't for me, so I'm not going to engage with it, right? It's like, yeah, but the whole point is to, like, get you out of your comfort zone and learn things about folks that you haven't heard from before. That's literally the entire point. The point isn't just to talk to trans people, even though I love trans people and I will make the show for trans people forever. And then it's fascinating because even when like my show is like for people of all genders and I make that very clear. And then when I'm uh, when I'm interviewing cis people, they're like, are you sure you want to talk to me? And I was like, yeah, that's (laughs) that's the whole point that I really want everybody to think critically about gender. And I actually want to model how you can talk about gender to a cis person, you know, and and okay. But there is almost this like you can't win, right? Like. In, in some ways, your show gets viewed in a certain way. And in another way, because I'm trans, then people just assume that the only people I want to talk to are only other trans and non-binary people. And I'm like, no, I want you all to think about gender mm-hmm. all the time. Like, I, because, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah, and there's something fun about asking cis people the questions that we ask trans people, right? Like, it's like, oh, how do you know you're mm-hmm. a girl? <laughs> when did right? you know that you were a girl? <laughs> exactly. Or. Yeah, exactly. Or what? How do you think your work interfaces with gender? Which yeah. it does all yeah. the time, right? How can it not? And I really appreciate this. Is folks who are like, yep, I I can talk to you about this and make myself vulnerable. And some of them might never have thought about gender in this way in relation to their work, and it's fascinating to me because I'm like, how do you not think about gender all the time? <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I was leading because I lead workshops, and I was leading this mm-hmm. workshop for like sixty educators, and. I forget the question, but it was essentially like, can you talk about a time in which like you struggled to like fit in to your assigned gender? And it was like, it was like mostly cis people. It was like 60 cis people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I forget the exact question, but I just remember walking around the room and hearing everyone say like, oh yeah, I remember when I was a kid and like, I didn't fit in this way. Or like at this time when I didn't fit in this way and this didn't fit in this way. And then after everyone talked about that for like 10 minutes, I was like, okay, can you raise your hand if you described an experience of you not conforming strictly to your gender? And like four people raised their hands. And I was like, no, you, you all did. <laughs> you all just did. I just heard you. <laughs> but like, cis people don't want to cop to the fact that like, they don't, you know, 
uh, conform to their gender 100% of the time because then they have to question everything they've ever known. So I'm just like, okay. <laughs> right, but it's so true. Whenever I do training, I've had the same experience, which is why that's how how to understand your gender came about, which is really for cis people. People keep thinking that's for trans people. And I'm like, no, give it to your cis relatives, really. <laughs> I mean, you might, yeah. trans and non-binary people have enjoyed it too, but I was like, no, really, it's for cis folks. And I think it is because gender gets policed so rigidly, right? Which then goes back to the, gender is part the rigid gender binary is part of this ongoing settler colonial project because it's about controlling bodies right in this weird tight way and um and people don't want to like say that actually i do have a certain level of discomfort do you find that that's changing generationally like i'm making assumptions from your <laughs> and, and your existing online that you're like way younger than i am <laughs> like i'm 48 and uh, and i find that a lot of folks in content creators and podcasters are generally like 20 years or so younger than I am. And um, it seems like it's changing, you know, and I'm a parent of a teenager and in their generation, she's 15, you know, I don't know, I think there was a study like one third of her generation identifies outside of the gender binary. Do you think that there is a generational shift in people being more comfortable in not feeding into societal gender norms at all or yeah i really really do uh, you know particularly here right because like every culture has their own situation but here uh in the united states there are now children who are in elementary school and middle school who are you know identifying as gender non-conforming and gender creative and trans and non-binary. And like, I think that's always been true. But what I think is different now is that there are systems to support them. And there are like communities where a bunch of gender creative kids hang out together. Um, and there are parents who are like really, really invested in like making sure that their kid is respected and accommodated and advocated for. And like, that's something that's so unrelatable to me. And having the concept of their they're just, I've met parents who are like, yeah, my kid's trans and I'm doing everything I possibly can to make sure that my kid has like the easiest possible life as a trans kid. And I'm talking to their teachers and I'm talking to their whatever. And like, that's so unrelatable to me. And it's so incredible. And it is so moving. And like, how could we not believe that it's going to get better for trans folks when we see these kids who are eight and who are you know, experimenting with different identities or different pronouns or who are not worrying about what their gender role is supposed to be and like just being themselves. It's, and I know that like, that's not true in a hundred percent of places or a hundred percent of kids. And there are still kids who will like police the gender binary, like really strictly. Um, and their parents, of course, there's so many parents who are not that supportive. I am, I get really frustrated because sometimes mm-hmm. people say like, Oh, everything's better now. And I'm like, no, there are kids who are, you know, there's still like 40% of homeless youth are LGBTQ, right? So like, it's not like everyone's great. But the fact that literally anyone is having a good time as a trans kid is like really incredible to me. And so I do think, and like when I, hmm, my standards for being misgendered are really different uh, generationally. Like when I meet someone who's my age or younger, I like really expect them to know what they them pronouns are and to get it right. And when I'm talking to someone who's in their 50s or 60s, like, I don't assume that they know what that means. You know, sometimes they do, but. Which is fascinating, too, right? Because so much is also um, dominant culture. I don't know, somebody a while ago had this tweet the, about, you know, boomers don't know how to say cis hat, but they can explain some, I don't know, something about financial finance. <laughs> 
And I was like, I, I was like, well, I don't know. I'm not quite a boomer at 48, but I know plenty of boomers who could totally say it's a sad or normative and also like talk about the patriarchy. And I think partially is that we have lost so much intergenerational community in trans and queer community because of the HIV crisis. Yes. And, and I feel like that could be a whole other kind of episode, but it's something I feel really strongly about that the, there's been this disruption of healthy intergenerational community uh, for trans and queer folks. And it's almost like, um, you know, people had to almost reinvent the wheel because so many adults and elders either died or were grieving or, you know, what had happened kind of in the eighties. And, and I don't know if that's something that ever comes up. Um, yeah. For you in your own community as well around that. Yeah. It's interesting because I think the conversations that I have with people who are roughly my age, which is like late twenties, early thirties, uh, are, Hmm. They're really different based on gender assigned at birth. Because I mm -hmm. think people who thought of themselves as gay men for a long time were like hyper aware of the HIV crisis, even if it was like before their time. And folks who were raised um, like as girls, basically, people who are assigned female at birth and then like grew up thinking of themselves as girls for a while, like didn't really interface with it in any way <laughs> because we were told like this is for gay men. Um, and so. Yeah, so that's like two different experiences. But I think in my community, we sort of never touch it. And then when we do touch it, it's to be like, oh my gosh, there's this whole generation that we're never going to meet. How can we commute? Like, how can we connect with queer elders? We need to connect with queer elders. And then we don't, because <laughs> we don't know how. <laughs> and so like, yeah, I mean, like, I really appreciate getting to talk to you. And like, I've had like really important feedback from people who listen to my podcast that are like, you're really not speaking like we're listening and we're like 40 and 50 and 60 year old trans people. And like, you're not speaking to us. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm completely fucking up. And the reason is that I don't get to talk to queer elders like ever. Like, I don't know uh, trans people. I shouldn't say no, but like, I'm not in community with trans people who are older than like 35 or 40. I guess actually that's not true. You know how trans people, everyone looks really young. <laughs> that's true. So, like, sometimes like that's actually not true. But like, I mean, like, I think my older like my oldest trans friends are like in their forties. Um, but they're still coming from like a really different place than like the folks who were really heavily impacted by the HIV crisis. And I would love, 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 love to figure out a way to like connect those two communities more. And I don't know how to do it yet. So if you do, <laughs> I'm open to it. We should totally talk. I do. I have so many ideas. And I think that's also has been interesting to see, um, how generations impact each other, right? If I'm, I think about one of my close folks who's um, in her 60s and uses a different pronoun and uh, per used to identify as like fair gender, that's more the language that per used. Um, and now with this like non-binary umbrella, there's almost like a permission that a lot of folks feel to be seen and be themselves and but also a lot of frustration that I've heard from kind of elders of we've tried to communicate this again and again and we've been erased again and again and then even sometimes young folks do it right I was in this conflict where this non-binary person was talking to this elder about their male privilege when they were both non-binary oh, people no. and I was like this is Yes, absolutely. And then there were other complicated things going on. And, and my heart was just breaking, you know what I mean? And I was like, what is happening here? This is so much of societal trauma in this tiny interaction, right? That is so charged. 
and, and the ways in which we police even each other or we think we see other people, but we don't really, but we don't really, yeah. you know what I mean? I don't know if I'm making sense. No, you're making but, a yeah. sense. I think it's just, it's hard because, I mean, it's hard for a lot of different reasons, but I think I definitely mm-hmm. like have an assumption in my brain that when folks are significantly older than me, they don't know as much about trans stuff or don't respect trans identity as much as younger folks. And that comes from that being my lived experience, but that doesn't mean that it's universally true, you know? And so like, (laughs) I would really, really love uh, to build that more. And that's something that I'm like trying to work on um, more. So I appreciate you talking to me about it. And I think that, you know, I read the entire Dykes to Watch Out For uh, compilation and Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is from 1989 and this is exactly my life. Yeah. You know, so like nothing changes like we all like have gone through the same things and we would be so much stronger if like we the younger generation and also folks younger than me were able to learn from folks who had been fighting this fight for like 40 years 50 years beyond and uh yeah I would love to figure out ways to like have more access to that and like be able to like really show those folks like the respect that they deserve and the honor that they reserve Absolutely. And I think that's another way that we resist that dominant culture, right, to really reclaim our own communities and know that we do have elders, we do have, you know, ancestors, and we do have this strong connection in community across generations. Oh, I feel like I could talk to you for like another (laughs) hour or two or three, I don't know, but I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to go to my classic last question, which is, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you are really, I really wanted to talk about that and kind of we missed? Mm, Yeah, I also asked that question. Uh, (laughs) It's a good one. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, there's nothing like off the top of my head. Um, No, I think we're good. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. And yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you too. Yes. And I think I w- I'm really curious. I was like, what was happening in the stars that, cause I started my podcast in very early 2018. Oh. And I think it was, yes, it was, it was that time where I was also looking around and going, what, where's the content by like trans and non-binary people. And then your podcast also uh, pop out and I was like, yes. And you, I don't know how you do it with the weekly episodes, <laughs> but I was like, what was in the stars between the shift of 2017, 18 that brought all this amazing content out? Yeah. I mean, I think that is what I would say if I had one thing to say is just to like really show up for independent media that you care about. I mean, to, to listeners show up from independent media that you care about. Because when I was starting my podcast, I was like, Hey, who knows any queer or trans podcast? And like, no one knew a single podcast about gender. And I researched it so much. I couldn't mm-hmm. find any podcasts about gender. And then since I've been making the show, I found a zillion podcasts about gender and like, they're just not out there. So I think like getting the word out about the media that you care about and showing up for them, whatever way you can is like so important because we don't have like marketing budgets, you know, <laughs> and we're not going to get like institutional support. So really all we have is each other. That is very real. I mean, what budget? But all we have is each other. And you do have an amazing shirt that people can buy that says support transmedia. I bought two, one for me and one for my non-binary partner oh. who produces the show. So where can people find like your merchandise or find your podcast? Basically like call to action. Yes. Where can people find you if they want to hire you 
or the one you're Gosh, yeah. So there's a lot. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Molly Woodstock. The podcast is on Twitter and Instagram at Gender Reveal. I'm at mollywoodstock.com. The podcast is at genderpodcast.com. But then you can also listen to the show Gender Reveal in whatever app you use to listen to your podcast. Uh, so find us wherever and we're around. And then the merch is at bit.ly slash gender merch. Uh, I get really good handles because apparently no one's ever done anything with gender before. So bit.ly slash gender merch. We have a rotating selection of like t-shirts, stickers, bags, and all of it is designed by trans people. And then I don't make any money off the store because I'm allergic to ever paying myself. And so half of the money goes to the designer. And then the other half of the money goes to like a LGBTQ nonprofit that the designer chooses. So like the support transmedia shirt is designed by Beth Easton, who's like a wonderful young trans person. Uh, in the UK, and then half the process, proceeds go to Beth, and half the proceeds go to Gendered Intelligence, which is like a UK org for trans kids or trans adults. I don't know, trans people. Um, no, it's it's children. Okay, great. Youth, That's I'm what I sure. And, and they're but they're amazing. Yeah, they're really they're, good. They're really good. They're really good. And so yeah, <laughs> yeah, so there's all sorts of stuff, and then it's always rotating out. Like every few weeks, we have more stuff to buy. If you want to just throw your money at like trans merch, and who doesn't? <laughs> I mean, I say for your money, for your support, especially if you're a cis yeah. listener to like us, trans and or non-binary creators, yeah. do it. You know, buy our merch, listen to our podcast, buy my yeah, book. Yeah, buy your book for sure. <laughs> and then also, I guess last thing, if you're just throwing money at things, is that we are at patreon.com slash gender. Again, an incredible handle. So if you want to throw some money uh, per month so that I can quit my job or whatever, um, patreon.com slash gender. <laughs> Do it. I, it's, I think it's really important to support trans and non-binary creator. I was going to say, don't forget your Patreon as well. And um, yes, please, dear listeners, support us. And if you are like, especially if you're a cutie BIPOC person who does need support to do more amazing things, check out mm-hmm. the grant program as well that Gender Reveal does and, uh, you know, get in touch so we can amplify your voices as well. I'm pretty sure Molly and I are kind of on the, the same train of like supporting and lifting each other up as uh, trans and non-binary folks. Mm-hmm. So, um, Yeah. And thank you for listening. And thank you, Molly, for this amazing time. I feel like I've just spent, I don't know, an hour just having yeah. fun. So <laughs> I hope no, you did for too. Sure. I, was te- I was talking to you and listening very diligently, but also my roommate and best friend is a um, queer, trans, indigenous therapist. And so I was like texting them and being like, a cool trans therapist, check them out. <laughs> so... It's true. It's a small world and we need to look out for each other. Sometimes I get teased that I've like supervised every trans and non-binary family therapist in the Midwest. <laughs> and I was like, that, that's probably. probably true in the last few years. And uh, I will do my best to keep mentoring people to come in the field because we need to take over everything. So Therapy, you know, the media, <laughs> just like trans take over, right? True. Manifest destiny. <laughs> but um. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, even in Portland where everyone's trans, there's like five trans therapists and we all like pass them around and then we have to give up. And like I had this thing famously on Twitter uh, where I was going to a trans therapist um, who was two in my community and we ended up, we kept dating the same people accidentally. And I was like, I have to stop. (laughs) And I went in uh, uh, to like a cis straight white lady because I was just like, I can't (laughs) engage with this anymore. So... 
this is too real. And Portland is very similar to mm -hmm. Minneapolis in some weird ways. And it's the same here. It's like there are so many trans folks and yet so few folks uh, with other resources or in kind of leadership, right? Like the Twin Cities doesn't even have an LGBTQ mm. center. Minnesota Trans Health Coalition and Rare Productions, I think are the only organizations that are led by QD, by actually trans and non-binary BIPOC folks. It's, it's just astonishing to me that there can be so many of us and yet so few resources thrown in our direction. So please support Gender Reveal in all the ways that we've already told you when we were wrapping up the show, but not quite, <laughs> because then I got chatting. <laughs> Alrighty. So thank you so much, Molly. And thank you, Gender Stories listeners, for listening to another episode. Go out there and support Transmedia. And thank you for listening.